Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Are you wearing the ring that you usually wear? This one? Yeah. I used to go to summer camp for eight, eight summers. I went to summer camp in Maine. And... Um, my parents sent me this ring, gold, a uh, signet ring, PB on it, uh, for my 13th birthday. And I was very upset because it was, it was backward. So I called my mother and I said, thank you so much for the ring, but you know, they made a mistake because it's backward. She said, no, it's a signet ring, you put it in wax. Look in the mirror with it, you'll see what I mean. She, I saw I did not, oh, I see. <laughs> and so I've worn it ever since. Do you wear any other jewelry? Yeah, I have a gold necklace that Dorothy gave me for my birthday in uh, 1980, July 1980. That would have been your 41st birthday. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when she put it around her neck. You wear it every day? Oh, yeah. I never take it off. I don't think I, I think I took it off once by accident since she was killed. And these two rings, which... Louise gave me both of them, and one's elephants and the other's turquoise. So I have three rings. Three rings and a necklace. They all mean something to Peter. Mementos of his life and the people who matter to him. His mother and father, Dorothy, and another woman who would play a significant role in his life. Dorothy's sister, Louise. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is Season 1 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This is Episode 7. I'm still Peter Bogdanovich. In the years after Dorothy's murder, Peter suffered. He stopped working. There were offers to direct, but he turned them down. What he did was search for some explanation of why Dorothy died. After she was killed, I read all those books you were told to read, and I didn't read them until after she died. Like uh, the book about Job or essays by Francis Bacon or things that are supposed to make you feel better. None of them did. Sashi, Peter's daughter, remembers how isolated her father became. The entourage was gone. Everybody was gone. You know, fair-weather friends. He didn't have parties anymore. He was devastated. It was like Camelot was exploded and just burned to the ground, and it just was heartbreaking. 
It's an understatement to say Peter didn't go out much. Really, he stopped participating in the world, but the world continued without him. Dorothy Stratton was planning to marry film director Peter Bogdanovich. Articles and movies about Dorothy's murder appeared one after the other. Dorothy was only 20 years old when she was murdered. Many were salacious. To Peter, they all got it wrong. And nobody knew what she was like because she hadn't met that many people. Peter went to a therapist who encouraged him to write a book about Dorothy. He was depressed, and the therapist thought writing might help him focus. It was sort of a long blur. And then I decided to write the book, and then that was it for about three years. The book became The Killing of the Unicorn, a memoir of Peter's romance with Dorothy and an investigation into her death. That was the most difficult thing I ever wrote. It used to take me two or three hours to just get myself to sit down and start again. It was very tough, I must say. But I was glad I did it. In the book, Peter blames Hugh Hefner and the Playboy culture for Dorothy's murder. He wrote that Hefner and his empire encouraged the victimization of women. As you might imagine, Hefner was not happy about this. It set off a very public battle between them, one that lasted years, with the two men blaming each other. After the book came out, Hefner held a press conference. Dorothy's tragic death was motivated. Dorothy's death was not motivated by her association with Playboy, Hefner tells reporters. By her association with Playboy. It was the breakup of the marriage, he says, and the affair with Peter Bogdanovich. Two powerful Hollywood men, both grieving and guilt-ridden, fought it out in public. An angry Hugh M. Hefner denounced director Peter Bogdanovich and the book he wrote about Dorothy Stratton. Hefner claimed he had a stroke brought on by the stress of Peter's accusations. His stroke was, I would say, moderately severe. The media ate it up. Dorothy Stratton was Playboy's 1980 Playmate of the Year. I think that her death just absolutely devastated him. Peter and Hugh Hefner never spoke again. By 1984, Peter hadn't worked in three years. I was broke. Really broke. And they came to me and offered me mask. I've got this real strange disease, and it makes my face look real unreal. Universal Pictures presents a Martin Starner production, Peter Bogdanovich's Mask. Actor Eric Stoltz played Rocky, whose face was disfigured from an extremely rare bone disorder. Peter cast the singer and actress Cher as Rocky's protective mother. You know, it takes time for people to get to like each other. I don't know why you think it should be different for you. But I am different, Mom. Cher's very good in close-ups because she has very sad eyes. They seem to be lamenting the whole world. So I did more close-ups of her in that picture than any picture I've ever done. At first, though, Peter didn't want a direct mask. And then I thought, well, I remember this thing about Dorothy and the Elephant Man. Peter's referring to his theory that Dorothy identified so strongly with the Elephant Man because they were both outsiders. Dorothy because of her exceptional beauty, the Elephant Man because of his deformity. That's why I did it. It was for her, actually. I'm going to need some additional information. Look, Mr. Sims, you know what? Don't jerk me around. I'm not in the mood. I've had a real crappy day so far. Cher and Peter did not get along while they were making the movie. And it didn't help when Cher refused to take Peter's side over the music in the film. Bruce Springsteen's album, Born in the USA, was released in June of 1984, right in the middle of production on Mask. 
It became one of the best-selling albums of all time. According to Peter, the real Rocky Dennis was a huge fan, so Peter asked Springsteen if he could use some of his songs in Mask. He liked Last Picture Show very much, and he liked my pictures. So he allowed me to use his music. Bruce said, use whatever you like except Born to Run. So I had about five or six songs in the picture. Peter thought it was all settled. He added the Springsteen music and submitted his final cut of Mask to Universal Studios. Then he took off to spend the holidays in Europe. And while we were gone, the bastards at Universal took all the Springsteen out and put in another singer, Bob Seger, whom I'd never even heard of. And they did it without my knowing. I came back and I was greeted with this. <sighs> I went through the roof. I sued the studio, which was not a smart move. Peter filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Universal. He tried to block the nationwide release of Mask, arguing that Universal violated his rights to Final Cut and damaged the movie. The studio claimed Peter lost his rights when he made a longer movie than they'd agreed to. They also said the music budget couldn't afford Springsteen. Everyone told Peter not to sue. Everyone. Wouldn't listen to anybody. Just went, boom, just did what I wanted to do and um, sued the studio. They said, don't sue the studio. I sued them anyway. I was not on all cylinders, you know. You get Universal released Mask with music by Bob Seger. Seeger may not have been Bruce Springsteen, but he'd been an enormously popular rock star since the mid-70s. Even without Springsteen, Mask was Peter's biggest hit in over a decade. Peter Bogdanovich's Mask, a superb new film that is certain to be... Critics gave Peter some of the best Peter. reviews of his career. This is a wonderful example of a couple of comebacks because both Peter Bogdanovich and... Schiff Audiences liked it too. It did well at the box office. This should have been a win for Peter, a career highlight, but it didn't feel that way. It would have been hugely successful with Bruce, obviously, because without Bruce, the picture was depressing, sad and depressing. With Bruce, it was sad and uplifting. Eventually, with no prospect of winning, Peter dropped his lawsuit. Peter went to Cannes to promote Mask, and even though Cher won Best Actress there, they didn't celebrate together. Peter knew things weren't going well for him, that he was damaging his reputation in Hollywood. So he left for Spain to get away from it all. And I stayed overnight somewhere, and I can't remember where it was. And I remember lying in bed thinking, I am in deep, deep, deep shit. At the time, it appeared to many that Peter was trying to sabotage his own career, count share in that group. It's like he has to fail in such magnitude, she said years later, that he destroys everything. At some point in 1984, Peter and Orson Welles started talking again, only occasionally and briefly, never quite recapturing their old friendship. I was pretty miserable at that point. The book on Dorothy, I think, came out in 84. And um, he never mentioned, he never talked about that to me, ever. Orson knew that the woman Peter loved had been murdered, but he didn't call Peter at the time of Dorothy's death, and he never brought it up in the years after. No. Never, not a word. He was pissed off at me. I get that he was pissed off at you, but you you would uh, you would be within your 
rights to be pissed off at him. Well, I wasn't, but, you know. What about now? No, I love him. I don't hold that against him. On one of those calls with Orson in late September of 85, there was a moment where Peter felt they turned a corner, that maybe they could find their way back to where they once were. And um, I said, Jesus, Orson, I feel like I made so many mistakes. And he said, well, it does seem to be impossible to go through life without making a great many of them. We sort of understood each other at that moment. A week and a half after that phone call with Peter, on October 10th, 1985, Orson Welles died at his home in the middle of the night. He had a heart attack. He was 70 years old. The obituaries for Orson were long and colorful, describing a child prodigy, a force of nature in film and theater, and a man of unfulfilled promise. The New York Times obit included this passage. For his failure to realize his dreams, Wells blamed his critics and the financiers of Hollywood. Others blamed what they described as his erratic, egotistical, self-indulgent, and self-destructive temperament. But in the end, few denied his genius. That same obit recited something my grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, once said about Orson. There, but for the grace of God, goes God. You know, when somebody as overwhelming as Orson Welles has an impact on your life, after a few years, after a few months maybe, you forget the shit and just remember the good stuff. Because he gave me a lot. He he taught me a lot, and not just tipping. He taught me how to tip. Give him a lot at the beginning and then reduce it. (laughs) That was one tip. He had a lot of fun, you know, a lot of laughs. Many people, myself included, it's hard not to look at your relationships with Wells, with Hawks, with Ford, with Hitchcock, and not think that you're searching for some paternal relationship there. Well, Jerry Lewis said that. He was interviewed about me, and he said, I think Peter's looking for his father. And I thought that was an interesting remark. Maybe he's right. Because my father, as I said to you, wasn't very demonstrative. I mean, I know he loved me and so on, but he wasn't demonstrative. He didn't rave about the movies. He didn't talk to me about sex or any of that stuff. He never had those kind of conversations. And I did with Orson. And I I, I guess I was looking for a father figure in a way. Over the years, people have accused Peter of name dropping, with Orson's name being the most prominent one dropped. There's probably some truth to that. Peter was certainly aware of the social capital he got from mentioning his friendship with the great old directors. But the other side to that is the more human side. Both before and after Orson's death, Peter, more than anyone, championed Orson's movies and ideas. Through Peter's stories, he kept Orson alive for people. Whether Orson deserved such loyalty is another question. Peter seems to have answered that question for himself long ago. Unfortunately for Peter, 1985 wasn't over yet. It had one last parting shot to fire. In December, Peter filed for bankruptcy. It stemmed from his decision to buy Dorothy's last picture, they all laughed, back from the studio and release it himself. By the time of the bankruptcy filing, Peter's debt totaled more than $6.6 million and he had more than 130 creditors, 
including unpaid bills at hotels, doctor's offices, limousine services, and local pharmacies. Peter made a deal with some of the creditors that allowed him to continue living in the Bel Air house for a while. According to the bankruptcy petition, Peter had only $21.37 in the bank and $25.79 in his pocket. Coming up after the break, Dorothy's sister Louise tells us about her relationship with Peter. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I've heard Peter say he experienced a form of insanity during the five years after Dorothy's murder. He was taking Valium to calm his nerves and sleeping pills to rest. He lost weight. There was the bankruptcy and Orson's death. One of the things that grounded Peter was his relationship with Dorothy's family. He knew Dorothy's 12-year-old sister Louise because she visited the Bel Air house with her older sister. Peter met Dorothy's mother, Nellie, for the first time at Dorothy's funeral. After that, he treated Nellie and Louise like family. They were still living in Canada, but they would visit Peter in L.A., Louise said Peter did everything he could to try to comfort them. He would get his daughters on holidays and we would share the holidays together. He would just take us to Disneyland. We took a trip to Europe. We went to visit my mother's family in Holland. And, um, you know, getting through that really dark time, he, he made it as comfortable as he possibly could. Louise is in her early 50s now, though she doesn't look it with her long blonde hair and her laid-back style. She's both an actor and a producer, and she's writing her own book about Dorothy. Louise remembers everything about that time. She says Peter helped support them financially, paying their bills, and for Louise's education. My sister started to um, put money aside in uh, a bank account that she opened for me when I was really young um, for um, braces on my teeth, and Peter followed through and, and carried that on and, and got that completed for me. And that was a big thing, you know, when I was young. Louise says Peter wanted them to be a family, like they would have been if Dorothy were still alive. I believed he was going to marry her and have a future with her. So I, I believe that he just wanted to continue something that he was going to do anyway. 
Dorothy's memory hovered over the family long after her death. Nellie struggled to talk about her daughter. Her name was rarely mentioned. Listen, I know how it is because my mother was like that. She wouldn't talk about it. My brother, who died when he was one year and a half old, when I finally did talk to her about him a year or two before my mother passed away, she could hardly talk. And it had been, what, 50 years or something. There's just certain things you can't talk about. So Peter and Louise talked about her, especially while Peter was writing the book, The Killing of the Unicorn. He would talk to me about certain things about her, and within that, I think that we created a closer bond based upon um, memories and conversations. And Louise and I were thrown together sort of in mutual misery, and um, we helped each other get through it. In 1987, seven years after Dorothy's death, Peter and Louise recognized that their feelings for each other had shifted. I don't know exactly how to explain it. Louise helped me survive, and I think I helped her. He was everything to me at, at that time. I didn't have a father. Um, I, I felt safe with him. I knew that there was a connection with my sister. I really loved him very much. Peter and Louise married December 30th, 1988 in Vancouver, Canada. Louise was 20. Peter was 49. We never really had a formal wedding. We just got married at the uh, Justice of the Peace, and we had, I think, one witness, and nobody else knew about it. Including Nellie, who wasn't happy that Louise and Peter didn't tell her about the wedding. But, you know, Peter wanted to, to have my mom involved, and I'm the one who didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to deal with anybody telling me that giving me their opinion. I wanted to feel grown up. I wanted to feel like I was a woman making my own decisions, you know? When Peter and Louise talk about the early days of their relationship in public, it doesn't sound like a romance. They describe a coping mechanism. Peter says it was like a shipwreck and they ended up hanging on to the same piece of driftwood. Young Louise was regularly flown to his home in Los Angeles. Marriage to her younger sister. The press and the tabloids relished this new development in Peter's life. So the big-time Hollywood director marries the centerfold's much younger sister. A People magazine cover headline read, A Tale of Two Sisters. Peter kept most of the bad press away from Louise. I really was, in a lot of ways, protected. And I think the only time I really got an idea of it was when I was on the cover of People magazine when we got married. I think it was a bit overwhelming for me at that moment. By that time, Peter had stopped caring about the bad press. I had enough shit hit the fan. A little more is going to be terrible. (laughs) We got married, and uh, I didn't think it was that unusual. I didn't fall in love with Louise because she was like Dorothy. Although she is in certain ways, and she's as, as kind and as thoughtful and as self-effacing. But I just, I, I just got along with her, and she was funny, and we got along. And, I mean, we have a common tragedy, you know. Peter also doesn't seem a bit self-conscious about the fact that the women he had relationships with, besides his first wife, Polly, were all much younger than he was. Because my mother was about almost 20 years younger than my father, which was not unusual in Europe particularly. 
In America, they tend to get married at both at the same age, but in Europe, not so. Well, the thing is, women get smarter quicker. <laughs> so uh, I used to say a, gir a girl of 10 is like a guy of 20, and a guy of 10 is like a, a guy of just born. <laughs> <laughs> with men, it subtract 10 years, and with women, add 10 years. That seems to have worked for me in, th in terms of my thinking. Of course, this is not the way we think about relationships between men and women today, but it is the way Peter has thought about them for most of his life. The decade after Mask was a mixed bag for Peter. He made four more films, Illegally Yours, Texasville, Noises Off, and The Thing Called Love. Despite working nonstop, he wasn't able to recapture the glory of his early career. Throughout much of the 90s, Peter directed movies for television, something big-time directors rarely did in those days. I worked just as hard on the TV movies, and they were good. Good scripts, good actors. The only difference was you had to shoot faster. The television work helped, but it didn't pay the bills. In 1997, Peter filed for bankruptcy for the second time. Looking for a fresh start, he and Louise moved to New York. Peter wanted to just go back to New York and go back to his roots and just to see what that would be like. And we were in New York for a while living together in a brownstone and we would take walks together, went to film festivals. We do many things that couples do. It was in New York that Louise and Peter began to drift apart. I was going through some personal issues, problems, and um, I felt like I was always somebody's someone, you know, Dorothy's sister, Peter's wife. I just felt like I wanted to find myself, and we separated for a while. In 2001, after 12 years together, Peter and Louise got divorced. She wanted a divorce, I didn't. And then she had a relationship with a couple other people. We weren't together as a couple anymore, but our foundation was the same. Even when we were divorced, we were friendly. And again, it was Peter and I. It was like through all these years, it's still that same relationship, whatever you want to call it. It's friends, it's family. And I think it's sad when people break up and lose one thing. They don't have to lose the whole thing. You know, it's very easy to judge from an outside, but you know what, unless you really go through something you really just don't know what brings people together. And, you know, people come together for different reasons, and love comes in different forms, you know? So if you get what love is, then that's basically what it is, and it's as simple as that. In the years after Peter's divorce, his career took some interesting turns. For example, he started acting again. In fact, he landed a recurring part on what many consider the best television show of all time, myself included. Peter got a call from David Chase, creator of HBO's groundbreaking show about a mob family. Are you in the mafia? I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive. He says, we're doing a series called The Sopranos. It's going into its second year. I said, yeah, I heard about it. I haven't seen it. Um, well, 
our leading characters, Tony Soprano's having problems with his therapist, and she's so harried by him that she needs a therapist. And we wondered if you'd like to play that. Sure, sure, why not? Look, I need you as a colleague to tell me that I did the right thing. You've got to ask yourself why you became a psychiatrist in the first place. If it was only to help people to stop smoking or biting their nails, then so be it. And nothing wrong with that. Peter played Dr. Elliot Kupferberg, the therapist of Dr. Jennifer Melfi, played by Lorraine Bracco. Yeah, she was very good. Although she constantly, she never did the same scene the same way twice. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't quite know exactly how to deal with that, but I just followed my instinct. But that was what we did. We did it for, I don't know how many shows I did, 15 or something. And I directed one, too. I loved it. It was really fun. Wonderful writing. The dialogue was great. And Peter knew what to do with it. Rescue fantasy. Dr. Kupferberg became a memorable Sopranos character. I only suggested you reevaluate your work with Lead Belly or be prepared to deal with moral and possibly legal consequences. Uh, Lead Belly? Who's that? Come on. The answer is a female opera singer and gangster. Da 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 da. Elliot! Soprano. During the show's run, a reporter said to Peter, it's been so long since your last film, a whole generation only knows you as Dr. Melfi's psychiatrist. Peter's response, as long as they know me. Here's where I'm about to say something unexpected. In 2006, Peter Bogdanovich went on tour with a rock band. Uh, I'm going to try this one for you. I haven't sung this song since uh, the last time we were here 13 years ago. He was shooting what became a four-hour documentary on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers called Running Down a Dream. It all started when a record producer, a friend of Peter's, called him up. He says, I want to do a documentary on Tom Petty. I said, why? And he says... Well, I was talking to Tom. Tom wants to do a documentary about the th first 30 years of the band. It's going to be 30 years next year or something. And um, he wants to get a major director. And I said, how about Bogdanovich? And he said, can we get him? And I said, I'll try. And so I'm asking you, can we get you? I said, well, I'd like to meet him, and then we'll see. He said, okay, I'll arrange a meeting. I hang up the phone, I turn to Louise, and I say, who's Tom Petty? <laughs> <laughs> I said, what is he, a country singer? She said, no, no, no. She said, he's one of the premier rock and roll stars in America. I said, oh, really? You like his stuff? She said, yeah, he's really good. Oh. So I met him at Jeffrey's down in Malibu. Did you get some of his music first? Uh, yeah, I did listen to some of the music, which I liked. Not my normal kind of music, that I, because Sinatra is much more my kind of thing, but I liked it, some of the songs. And I had liked the Beatles, so I'm not completely idiotic about rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, I thought he was really good and interesting. Peter met Tom Petty for lunch, and they talked for hours. A day later, he called Petty up. I said, I said okay, I'll do it. And he said, how are you going to do it? I said, you're going to tell it. And I had him tell the story, basically. We had become the biggest thing Gainesville had ever seen. We felt we had to break out of there. Peter gathered tons of footage, shadowing the band and interviewing other musicians and producers. At one point, the film was five hours long, so Tom Petty asked Peter a legit question. He said, it's getting a little long, ain't Pete? I said, yeah, it is a bit long. He said, well, we'll cut it down, and we got it down to about four hours or something. 
and we won a Grammy. Best long form video. And I thought I made a joke when I said, well, I sure is long form video, four hours or something. Wouldn't it be great if just for one moment everything was all right? Tom Petty died in 2017 of an accidental prescription drug overdose. He was 66. Peter's documentary has become a gift to Petty's fans. I love Tom. I really loved him. I miss him a lot. Such a great guy. Great man. Where everything was all right. While Peter remained close to most of the women in his life, Sybil, Monica, and Louise, he did not have a close relationship with his first wife, Polly. After their divorce, Polly continued working as a production designer. She picked up an Oscar nomination for Terms of Endearment. She also became a successful producer, making films like Say Anything, The War of the Roses, and Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket. Polly was widely admired in Hollywood for her taste and vision, and for her ability to guide projects she believed in over the finish line. All of the things Polly was good at, mentoring, connecting people, fueling the energy of a project behind the scenes, these are subtle but vital contributions that are rarely celebrated in Hollywood history, but they are often what get great movies made. In 2001, Polly was living in New York with her and Peter's youngest daughter, Sashi. Polly was sick, she had ALS. Peter went to visit her. And I apologized for the pain I'd caused her. She apologized to me for the pain she'd caused me. We laughed about something. I went over and messed up her hair a little bit, and she smiled, and that was the last time I saw her. Three months later, Polly died. She was 72 years old. Of all the things Peter and I talked about in our 15 hours of interviews, his relationship with his daughters felt the most off-limits to me. He never said as much, but I'm a father, and I sensed Peter's discomfort with it. I finally asked him about his girls in our last session together. Do you have any regrets about the kind of father you've been? Oh, sure. I wish I wish that we didn't have to put them through that divorce. Not easy for the kids. Never as easy for the kids. Because the kids are torn. They love us both. And, they, and what are they going to take sides? And all that? It just was a mistake. We did talk to Peter's daughters. They were honest, but forgiving. Peter's oldest daughter, Antonia, is a director working in Hollywood. When she looks back now, she recognizes the loneliness of growing up with two parents off making movies. I would say it wasn't the easiest childhood because my parents weren't around a lot. I didn't get to see my dad as much as I would have liked to. My mom got full custody when they split up because I think that was just the thing. But I had a great childhood at my dad's house. I mean, it was just fun. It was just really fun, you know? Kids are very malleable. They adjust. Sashi lives in New Jersey with her family, and she's getting a master's degree. My dad has always been really good at trying to maintain a relationship with me, and he always calls, and he used to call when he'd get on a flight, and... He's kept it there. She worked in films for a while, then decided to get out. I hate the film business. I hate that they dropped my mom when she turned 60. I hate that, you know, they think some of these movies are the best movies ever made, but my dad can't get a job. 
this business is so hard on old people, you know, on older people. And it's such a disgrace, really, because, you know, my dad was able to learn so much from Orson and John Ford and Howard Hawks and all these people. And I don't know. It's worth arguing that Peter's greatest contribution isn't his films. It's all he's done to preserve and champion movie history. Over the years, Peter has written more than 10 books. In 1997, Peter published a book called Who the Devil Made It. It's a vital resource. 800 pages of interviews and stories with some of the most important directors in Hollywood history. He followed it up in 2004 with Who the Hell's In It, featuring interviews with actors. These books by Peter have become part of how we understand classic movies. The best thing to do is to tell a story as though you're seeing it. All I see is a reptile. I thought it was one of the great pictures of all time. Ford, Hawks, Hitchcock, Orson. They were interesting. They were fascinating. I'd seen their work, and it was fascinating to see how much they were like their work or not. It was all very interesting to me. I learned a lot from that, just that knowledge, you know. There's a conversation Peter had with Orson Welles back in 1969 that has stuck with me. Peter was only 30 at the time. He likely didn't feel it so acutely. He had his whole career in front of him. But Orson was 54. Peter mentioned that directors in their 70s, like John Ford, were having trouble getting work. The next day, Orson brought it up again. I was thinking last night, it made me so sick what you told me about all these old directors who can't get jobs. And I was thinking of these conductors, you know, Klemperer, Barbaroli, Toscanini. I can name a hundred, almost, in the the last century, who were at the height of their powers after 75 and were conducting at 80. And who says you're over the hill? I know. It's so awful. I believe that Ford today would give us better pictures than he has ever made. Orson goes on, because it's only in your 20s and in your 70s and 80s that you do the greatest work. It's youth and old age that the greats are done, and we must treasure old age. the capacity to function in old age. Orson went on to tell Peter about a movie he wanted to make about an old director in his last days. I don't want to tell it. It'll blow it for you? It'll blow it for me. I'll say a few words. He is all the big macho, hairy-chested fellows, basically Ford. The director is a big, macho, hairy-chested guy, basically John Ford and John Houston with a sprinkle of Hemingway thrown in. He spends his summer in Spain on a boat with a man making a movie about him, and things are coming to an end for the director. Orson never finished that movie. Peter did. He and Frank Marshall rescued the footage from a vault in Paris and then oversaw the editing. Mr. Otterfield here wanted to be an actor, and he saw one of my films. He is a rough magician, isn't he? The Other Side of the Wind was released in 2018, 33 years after Orson's death. Now, Peter Bogdanovich, at 80 years old, is the elder statesman. Younger directors like Quentin Tarantino have become friends with Peter. They talk to him about his movies, and they champion his work. Quentin was so important in in terms of reviving the interest, and they all laughed, because he put it on a list of the 10 best movies of all time. 
Well, it gives you a certain encouragement that the younger generation likes your work and you don't, you don't feel like an old fart. You know? <laughs> Ryan Johnson, who directed The Last Jedi and Knives Out, is a fan as well. Johnson has the movie poster for At Long Last Love on one of his walls. Peter has also grown close to directors Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. Wes and Noah call me Pop, which I allow. <laughs> and I, I call them my sons. Peter says they've offered to help him produce a movie he's wanted to make for a long time. This is the one I've been working on for 30 years or more. Call Wait For Me. It's a ghost picture. The six ghosts in it. They're all friendly ghosts, however. <laughs> I'm quick to say it, hey, friendly ghosts. It's about a movie maker filmmaker uh, who's made, who's been married six times and has six daughters and six ex-wives. <laughs> and um, his last ex-wife, his last wife, she wasn't an ex, she died in a plane crash six years before the movie starts. And she died in this plane, small plane crash, with two of his best friends. And it's, it's really a comedy drama. It's kind of funny, kind of sad. And it's my best picture, I think. It was just very hard to make because there's so many characters. I mean, you weren't married six times, and you didn't have six daughters, but... I feel like I did. <laughs> <laughs> so is there is any part of that autobiographical? Oh, yeah, all of it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just changed a bit, you know? Right. You still feel vibrant, full of ideas. Well, I have some ideas, yeah. I'd like to make some pictures. What's the word I say? Oh, action! I'm better when I'm working. What can I tell you? I should be on a set all the time. Today, Peter lives in a condo in Los Angeles with Louise and Nellie. Louise suggested he come live there after he broke his leg in France at a film festival honoring him. That way she could help him recover. During one of the last interviews I did with Peter, he talked about how much he likes to sing. And it struck me, of all the things I associate with Peter Bogdanovich, singing is not one of them. But it turns out singing makes him happy. Not long ago, Louise bought him a karaoke machine. I find that when I'm singing, I find that when I do something creative, when I'm doing something creative, even singing, it really makes me feel better. I feel better when I'm finished than I did when I started, which is the whole point. So now I have this image in my head. Peter Bogdanovich, in this small condo he's sharing with Louise and Nellie, pulling out the karaoke machine with its handheld mic and small speaker. Maybe he ropes Louise and Nellie into it. So there they are, these three survivors. Peter checks the mic and, of course, chooses a Sinatra song. It's not that hard to imagine it. Peter doing one of the things he does best, performing for an audience. Remember, that's how he made his parents happy all those years ago. And now it seems he's learned how to lift his own spirits. He sings for himself. In all the old familiar places That this heart of mine embraces All day through In that small cafe the park across the way The children's carousel The chestnut trees and the wishing well 
I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and you've been listening to The Plot Thickens from Turner Classic Movies. Stay tuned, as we'll have some bonus episodes coming soon. Our whole team is so happy you listened. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Toon Welders composed our theme music, Mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yako Friedman, Susanna Zapeta, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Geltzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie DeCherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish, who's in the Witness Protection Pro... Never mind. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.